I'm Jeff Hunt, and this is Human Capital by Goalspan, where we uncover the deeply human aspect of work. One of the deeply human aspects of people is that they generally want to feel included. From the earliest age, we all want to be accepted, have our voices heard, and be respected. This is amplified at work, and when we build inclusive cultures, not only are they better environments to work in, but the evidence shows they also deliver higher financial rewards. Today, my guest is an expert on the topic of inclusion at work. Gina Cox has a doctorate in industrial and organizational psychology and is not only an author and a coach and a business counselor, but has just published a new book titled Leading Inclusion, Drive Change Your Employees Can See and Feel. Welcome, Gina. Oh, it's great to be here with you, Jeff. I'm super excited to have you on the show and to discuss your new book, but before we jump into that conversation, start by telling me briefly about your career journey and maybe share who or what inspired you most along the way. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the most important thing to know about my career journey is that I'm a frustrated journalist. If I really had had my way, I, you would see me in the Wall Street Journal or something because print journalism is just the most exciting thing as far as I'm concerned. I've wanted to do it since I was very young. But my father had worked in the newspaper business in England, and he said all newspaper journalists are uh, alcoholics who smoke too much. This was a stereotype from way back when, obviously, right? But he was serious and he said, why don't you study something else and you can write about it? You can always write about it. So I took his advice and studied psychology. And when I was an undergrad, I met a woman from the Institute for Social Research at the University of Michigan. And she said, industrial psychology. And I said, what? And I fell in love with it. So I studied a master's in IO and I studied a PhD in IO. But really, I haven't told the line within the discipline like many others have, because I'm a bit rebellious. I have so many different interests that I found that idea of sticking to one path a little bit restrictive. And so over my career, what I have intentionally done was try to build something that would give me the maximum flexibility, which is I hear that word a lot. But I did that partially because of my rebellious streak and my desire to explore, but also because I had gotten divorced, I had a young child and I wanted to create a work environment that I could, could sustain, something I really wanted to do. And so over the years, I've had the privilege of being an employee of companies uh, on the inside, advising them and their leaders, and also being an advisor from the outside to global companies, helping them figure out how they could build better cultures, have leaders that are more impactful and that sort of thing. So I always say to people who ask about this, there's really only one thing I know about a lot, and that is humans at work. I know a lot about that, both from intentional observation and study and just sheer interest and curiosity in what humans do. Well, it seems like your diversity of experiences coupled with your rebellious nature <laughs> makes you a great fit for someone to advise executives and also to put together a book like you've done that we're going to discuss today. Oh, well, thank you for that. I certainly think, though, that, that one of the things I wanted to do with this book is to write a book. Tony Morrison once said, if there's a story that you think needs to be told and, and it hasn't been written yet, then you need to write. I'm paraphrasing. And I wasn't seeing a book that was really explaining some aspects of this issue in the way that I thought it needed to be explained. And so I wrote a non-traditional business book that I hope fills a void. Well, I've read it and it definitely does. So I'm excited for our listeners to go check it out. Thank you. I'd like to start our conversation about leading inclusion by getting the attention of anyone that really cares about corporate financial performance and profitability, because that's usually an attention getter. 
Financial health in organizations should matter to all of us because when they perform well financially, it benefits everyone. And, and if you look at the evidence about inclusion at work, inclusive organizations have 2.3 times more cash flow per employee. These are some stats, Gina, that I just looked up before we began. They are 120% more likely to hit their financial goals. They're 1.7 times more innovative. If you look at the CEO community, 85% of CEOs with diverse and inclusive cultures recognize sustainable increasing profits. I'm starting us with this because I guess my question for you, Gina, is why is it so difficult to get the C-suite to focus on this topic, even though we have statistically compelling financial reasons? Mm. So obviously there's not an easy answer to that, but what I have observed over many, many years is that this is a, a sort of a, a socially taboo topic. It is a socially taboo topic, especially up until spring of 2020. And so when I have talked to executives, they have said, I'm not sure this even belongs on my plate. Somebody else should be handling this. Or they'll say, you know what? No matter what I do, if I do something, I'm criticized. If I do nothing, I'm criticized. So maybe I ought to just sort of wait and see, let these social norms play out, because I really don't think they belong to me anyway. And that's what my advisors tell me. And another thing they would say is, I'm not even sure that I understand what it is that the people who are meant to be the beneficiaries of this kind of work really want and how I will know when I'm delivering on what they want. So I hear all of those things from leaders. But fundamentally, I think the issue has been that we have framed this as either a business case issue or we've, we've framed this as a moral imperative or something of that sort, neither of which are arguments. I don't argue with either of those points of view. However, my framing is that this is really a leadership obligation. And so if you are thinking about leading an enterprise, it doesn't seem to me to be a reasonable thing that you would say, I have this whole pie, but I only know about 75% of it. And the other 25%, oh, it'll take care of itself. I don't really have to understand. And so from my perspective, we have not ever framed this conversation in the right way. And if I do, and I do talk to professors in business schools and people who write about this issue, for example, if you read um, a book called Leading Leadership Reckoning, which is one of my favorite books of 2020, Tom Colditz, what you will see is that when we train people to run or, uh, organizations, we underemphasize the human experience in general. And we don't ever talk about this stuff in the curricula. When we graduate people from some of the top schools in our country, that is starting to change. By the way, I did just see that a couple of our Ivy League uh, MBA programs are adding a conversation about this. So there's all of that, meaning to say, that there is no, there has never really been any social obligation or pressure to say that this should be focused on as a leadership imperative. We don't train leaders to talk about it. There is an emotional barrier as well, because let's be completely honest about it. People might have personal, social, political, religious, or who knows whatever kinds of reasons why they think this is not an appropriate topic in the workplace. And if they do, I think that is going to cause them to either do nothing, very little, or to do whatever they do in a very sort of slow and under the radar way. And then the last thing that I have observed about what is holding leaders back on this issue is that in some people prefer not to get their hands dirty with it. Not just that it's taboo, but they just prefer not to. And so we hire 
over and over, people to lead diversity and inclusion functions, regardless of what we call them, we say, here, take care of this. We give them the hot potato. We say, fix it. And then, oh, by the way, we don't give them the resources, the political clout, or the things they need to be influential. They stay for 18 months to two years, and then they leave. And then we just start all over again. I mean, there's so many, and all of these issues, so many issues, and most of them come down to what do you believe? leader, CEO, C-suite member, board director, personally. Yeah, so you're really setting the table for us well because it seems like that's a fantastic question for every single C-suite executive and leader to be asking themselves. So that's my first reflection on what you just said. My second reflection is that many of the actions that we're seeing are reactive. They are not proactive. So it's the path of least resistance not to lean into these difficult topics and conversations, which by the way, the only way we're going to overcome these challenges is by having these difficult conversations, right? That's right. And the reason we should lead into them, I think, is really for our children's sake. Like at the very least, I think about my own daughter whenever I think about this. I don't want her to go through this whole this stuff for another generation or another two, her children and what have you. And so, yes, I do feel that there is this need for leaders to see the opportunity to be proactive, strategic, to to to, to guide an organization around these issues, but I don't think anyone will ever do that unless they have a personal why, unless they truly believe that these issues matter. So core values really need to change and be in alignment with these inclusion areas that we're going to talk about. Otherwise, it becomes a check the box event based initiative. It's not sustainable, right? That's right. It's something that eventually returns back to that state that it was before. When I think about your book, one of the premises, if I understand it correctly, is really that human variation, when it's embraced in business, it can have profoundly positive impacts. That human variation is a really good thing. And we've heard so much about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, but you have a little bit of a different twist in your book called READI, R-E-D-I. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you can explain what's the difference between READI and D-E-I-B. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So first of all, human variation is profoundly normal. That's probably the most important thing. So it, it is the lack of variation that is abnormal. And so we should never have ever, we should assume that in everything we do, we are going to encounter human variation. So I, that is sort of a fundamental point of view. But with regard to DEIB, the acronym that is much more common or DEI or, or without the B, that sort of thing. I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because people know what those ideas are and they're very valid and very useful. However, in the research that I was doing, what I discovered is that I think I told you before some of the things that are holding leaders back. And when I did a survey in the summer of 2020 and talked to approximately 500 working folk about, about among them being about 149 Black women specifically, and I chose, I wanted to have the representation of Black women on purpose, what they said was that, yeah, we know this. We can see this in the day-to-day -day behavior of our leaders. They tend to avoid rather than approach, literally. And we see it in their in the way they handle these issues or don't handle them at all. They avoid these issues. And in their avoiding, what we interpret that to mean is that they're, they disrespect us. They don't care enough to be curious so that they can understand and then connect with us. And then we can all build this comfort together from a, a place of common understanding. And that was when I started to really think a little bit more about this respect issue, because they would use the word respect. And 
And what I instilled ready, R-E-D-I, respect, equity, diversity, and inclusion, it puts respect first. And I, so I call it a respect first a model. And it does that for the reasons I just explained. But also, as I sat back and thought a little bit more about this, respect is one of those fundamental currencies that every human deserves, right? It isn't anything special and we all want it. We all know when we're getting it. It's almost a visceral reaction that we have to, to the spaces that we're in. So it's a very common concept for people to get their hands around. Nobody walks around saying belonging. I yearn for belonging. People don't really talk about those some of these concepts in the same way. And so I thought the other thing is that, you know what? I noticed that one of the behaviors that interferes with people's ability to deal with this issue, or I can tell when people don't want to deal with this issue, they can't even make eye contact with people in a hallway. If you can't do the fundamental sort of respect things that just acknowledges another human, I don't know about these other things that you might measure or care about. I don't know if they matter, at least not in my interaction with my manager and my team or my colleagues, right? So respect is powerful by virtue of its universal potential for universal application and understanding, but also because everybody knows what it feels like when they don't have it. And most people yearn for it. It's almost like you're saying respect is the precursor or it must supersede the equity component, the inclusion component, right? You have to have that first. Yes. I think, especially at the individual level, when you wish to do whatever you do, because if you don't, because it does lead to that curiosity, right? That interest, that fundamental, oh, here's another human. I want to know something about that human uh, as opposed to avoid. So yes. Would you say, Gina, there's a lack of education among C-suite executives about black history in the United States? I wouldn't, I would say that, but I would step back even further. And this is strangely, there's a lack of education among Americans about this issue. I did not know that until 2020. I didn't know that because I didn't grow up in the United States and I had learned a lot about the black experience by virtue of arriving in this country, being treated in a way that lets me know, aha, there's a code. I must know the code because I have to know why are people reacting to me this way. So I studied and I learned some things, but I still don't, I still don't know everything that I need to learn. But what I discovered in 2020 was that certainly most Americans are very segregated with regard to the way their educations are, the way they're taught and the way they live. I mean, I knew that, but it was confirmed. And then when you go to think about this issue from a socioeconomic perspective, you recognize how we are so segregated by socioeconomic status and also professional status. And so it is very likely that senior leaders of organizations, people in these very uh, special positions, you know, they've worked hard and it is sort of isolated in a way, I, it is unlikely that they're going to encounter a wide swath of America. And then we've, I've learned that certainly in schools, there isn't a pattern in practice of talking about these issues. And so I know the same thing about, for example, the Native American experience. I wouldn't say just CEOs, but on the other hand, because I have focused this book and my work on the enter business enterprise, it was important to sit, to point that out, which is the reason why I did include a whole chapter where I spent months and months studying a little bit more about the African-American history specifically so I could put it in there as a quick cheat sheet, if you would, you know, just some real key things that might help you understand why it feels so awkward and difficult to connect. Opportunity to for us all to learn. And I think it is a prerequisite to being effective in leading an enterprise. 
One of the things you mentioned is that using the word minority is actually not helpful when referring to underserved or disadvantaged groups. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about that. This is a conversation that takes place quite a bit in communities of color. And I know this because I am, I have been part of those conversations and I've heard those conversations. And so the origin of it, I'm not a hundred percent sure. So I'm I'm not, I'm stating this more from my personal experience and observation, uh, and of course, things I've read, but really the issue here is that by definition, the word minority implies something less than something else, right? And it almost sounds like a permanent state of affairs as well, right? So that is why some people who might be described in this way object to being described in this way. And then, of course, the obverse of that is majority. And that's also another opportunity for a whole bunch of sociological analysis both on the basis of demographic trends and, and just the power dynamic. I mean, so much goes wrong when you use those two words from the perspective of people who've been traditionally disadvantaged. So that's really the fundamental thing. If you call me minority or if you call a group I'm part of a minority, I does, it, doesn't, it doesn't personally offend me. But if you have the opportunity to avoid using words that perpetuate the problem and the power imbalance, then I think it is advantageous to do so. And it adds some credibility when you are then talking to me, because the minute I hear you use words that I already have flagged as sort of problematic, I might say, I wonder if he, that person is paying enough attention and knows what's really going on. I mean, I'm not going to dislike you or hate you or anything as a result, but I do think it, it, there's an opportunity to think about the language. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was kind of connecting the dots between employee experience and inclusion. When you think of employee engagement and experience problems in organizations, where are those coming from? Yeah. So I love, I love employee experience. I love employee surveys. I love employee measurement and employee opinions. I love that stuff. And I, I will give you a little, I mean, I will say this, I could be, I could almost be blindfolded and put into any organization and ask that question. And I can have a few directional pointers already to know where I might look. And the first place I might look because of all I've seen over the years and looking at employee data is that employee experience is is primarily influenced by manager behavior. And there's a, lots of research. We can talk about what proportion of employee experience, the variance in employee experience is explained by manager behavior. And we generally conclude that 70% of the time, the experience that you're gonna have as an employee is probably gonna be related to something your manager is doing or not doing. So in the end, it usually comes down to the relationship between an employee and a manager in terms of what the experience the employee the experience the employee will have but the experience of a manager or the behavior of a manager is really something that i think is a great opportunity in this conversation because most managers haven't really been trained to think about the impact that they're having we have people who are really good at task managing tasks and we have some who are good at managing people but what we really select for is general managers. And we say we want a manager. And when we say we want a manager, we're looking for someone that we think is mostly going to get something done. And where the human experience falls in that equation doesn't get as much examination as I think it should before we decide who we're going to put in charge of our precious humans in an organization. So organizations writ large have an opportunity to think about how do you what do you express as the behavioral expectations for how employees, managers will behave and how they will influence experience? And again, that sort of starts at the top. And this is a, because I fundamentally, 
managers should stay, they should have an obligation to do no harm or to do as little harm as possible, right? But we know it doesn't really play out that way. So employee experience is related to this whole conversation in the sense that this applies to every employee, but for certain groups of employees, what we see if we look at employees' data over time or across organizations, and we array favorability scores on most of the things that we measure, including engagement, including perceptions of career development, uh, career mobility, equity in decision-making and access and, uh, to opportunity, recognition and those sorts of things. When we array these data points, we typically see that employees from traditionally disadvantaged groups have lower favorability scores. They might, they could still have fairly strong engagement scores in the sense that we, how we traditionally measure engagement. They're there and they're, they're proud to be associated with the organization. They're working hard, they're putting in discretionary effort. But on a, on a, when they go home at the end of the day and talk about the experience that they have had, in spite of the fact that they worked, they did their job, they talk about these experiences that many of which are not positive. So managers, I've got, to, we've got to train managers to recognize that this is their responsibility. I call it 100% leadership, lead everybody on the team. And so when someone, an attendee in a webinar once asked me last year, he said, you know, a young man, a, a wonderful person. And he said, you know, I've got two black women on my team and I don't know how to lead them. And I said, someone has sold you a bill of goods because people of color, people who are LGBTQ plus women, people who are neurodiverse are not really asking for anything special or new. They're just asking for the same high quality leadership that you might be meeting out to other people that they're not receiving. I see. What you're really saying is that it's a combination of a number of different facets to develop the highest performing leaders that are going to help create inclusive environments. And it's not just limited to training because sometimes organizations can get tripped up on that, right? Because they can check the box on training, but then it doesn't actually create systemic change. It sounds like what you're referring to is actually creating a language around what behavioral values are so important, what behaviors are so important in the organization and why, and then actually providing managers and leaders feedback, perhaps even in real time, if possible, about how they are either upholding those behaviors and creating more inclusive environments or how they may actually be degrading the inclusion and the employee experience for people. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement and very well said and nicely packaged for, for anyone who's listening to me ramble on <laughs> because yes, indeed that is the case. But the thing about that is it does have to start from the top of the organization, because if you if I listen to the words that you used, which summarized a variety of ideas, the truth is that these are the culture. If you think about it as like a carpet upon which everything else sits, employees, uh, including managers, can discern whether they can, this is an environment where they can get away with behavior that lacks integrity or that lacks honesty or that isn't supportive of all employees. So people figure this out, right? So if you bring a person into an organization as a leader who isn't human centered, if they might have an opportunity to just play to their lowest, to the lowest common denominator, if no one tells them otherwise. And if you bring a strong leader in, they might just regress to the mean, which is like, well, nobody else seems to care about these things. So it is important to establish those behavioral expectations from the top of the house with clarity and then to hold people accountable, especially if they have manager responsibilities for exhibiting those behaviors. And so, Gina, let's shift and talk a little bit more about 
understanding and addressing racial trauma in the workplace. How can leaders actually do that? Well, this is a huge topic. I do think that the starting point is that there is such a thing as racial trauma. Now, I don't think most people knew this until a few years ago because the folks who might have experienced, might have been having these experiences, including myself, would not talk about these experiences at work. And the last person we would necessarily tell is other leaders. Because the issue with racial trauma is that the whole system is set up in such a way that talking about it puts you in a situation where you are at risk for being criticized, for being somebody who just cries wolf, who's a complainer, who likes to pull the race card and language that I have heard others use. And so I think what we've taught people is if you have bad experiences, but you come from a traditionally disadvantaged group, keep your mouth shut, keep your head down. We've taught one another that too. I should say, our families have taught us this. And then go home and talk about this with other people outside of work. So that, but that is a reality. And there are books about this. And Minda Hartz has written a couple of good books on this topic. But so I think leaders of organizations and colleagues of all types in organizations have just got to start from the point of view of believing that this is true because my personal experience tells me that not everybody even believes this. So, you, but you do have to start there because if you can't start there, then there's no way you're going to be able to lend support or even think about this is related to the respect issue. You don't care enough to know that there's a problem. So how are you going to possibly fix it? So yeah, it's real. But the thing about it is that even without using the language of racial trauma, it is very important for leaders of organizations to know what is the day-to-day -day experience of all employees. And another thing that I know is that many leaders do not know, regardless of what those employees look like. And some of the reasons why leaders might not know is not because they're bad leaders, but there's this other pattern that happens in organizations where people don't like to tell leaders the bad news. They tend to sift the data and give them very selected pieces of data to guide them in a certain direction. So every leader really needs to have a board of directors, a separate board of directors of people who are selected strictly for the purpose of telling them what's really going on. And this will help all employees. It sounds like what you're also saying is that it's important to actually capture data. And I know you talk a lot about surveys and surveying the workforce. And so this is really understanding the pulse of what's going on. But t talk a little bit about how surveys can help us really understand what employees are experiencing. People ask a lot about this and people often say, well, isn't there some new technology that I ought to be trying in place with surveys? And I'm here to say, sure, there could be other technologies, but the value that I have found in surveys and why I continue to be a fan of surveys in terms of helping leaders understand what's going on is that they're a highly definable, manageable, relatively low cost in comparison to other, other technologies that one might use. And if used consistently can really, and you sort of, you can triangulate different kinds of data to figure out what's really going on here. So I think surveys are an extremely, a relatively pain-free way for leaders to get the information that I'm talking about. Now, one thing I would say though, is that over my professional career and even through my training, leaders have tended to focus primarily on quantitative data and quantitative data has a great value in this conversation. But what I have noticed is that most more executives are starting to ask a little bit more about the comments data, about the qualitative data and other kinds of data that tell the story. So 
X number of years ago, if I had written a business book, I always wanted to, it's going to be kind of dry. It's going to have lots of facts and recommendations and actions. And that was going to be the book I would write. Well, because of, the, of what happened in the last several years, by the time I actually had the opportunity to write a book, I was very clear that what leaders really need aren't just facts, but they also need some clarity about the emotional experience that I was talking about, which is how I wrote my book. It's similar thing with understanding employee generally experience in general. I think leaders have got to make sure they're getting enough of the true day-to-day experience, not just the, the favorability go up by one or two points or go down. And I think that's what's going to make the big difference. So you can get that from the, the, in the design of your traditional surveys and other, you know, of course, there are other ways, but it is a really useful tool. And still, when I talk to leaders, I find that many organizations aren't doing surveys that, you know, they're just not. And I'm thinking, how do you know what's going on? You know, right. <laughs> exactly. Well, and the written word provides so much context associated with any numerical ratings, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. It is where all of the secret sauces and all the things, the nuances that you and I are talking about that I have tried to make explicit in the book are hidden in the comments. Now, I will say this. Anyone who has a survey program of any kind also needs to be, to ask, well, what is the culture of honesty and feedback that is built around all of this? Because even if you have a wonderful survey, if you aren't really, if people aren't comfortable saying, telling you honestly how they feel and so on, they still won't do it. It seems like the other caveat too, at least from our experience, because our software has a survey module in it that our customers use all the time. They use it for things like employee net promoter score and strategic planning and leadership assessments of the leadership team. But if they're not willing to publicly share the information that they found in the survey, along with initiatives that the executive team is going to take as a result of the information they received, then it can actually backfire. Isn't that true? Oh yeah, absolutely. And it is really important if you ask, it's like anything else. If you ask me a question, I presume that you want to hear the answer. So sometimes when you're in a one-to-one conversation with someone, not you, because you're very good at this, a person will ask you something. And before you get a chance to answer, they've gone off on something else or they're telling you about their experience. And so it's just like that with surveys. They will give you the benefit of the doubt the first time around and share what they have to to share. And then what they're looking to see is what is the reaction. It's a two-way thing. So it's a fundamental idea that if you're doing surveys, you must be taking action on those surveys. You must let employees understand what actions you're taking. Another interesting thing about this this cluster of of content and, and ideas that I call ready, this whole conversation, is that one of the very unusual behaviors that I observe in this domain is that leaders don't tell employees what they are doing about the things that they identify specifically about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it goes back to this emotional uh, discomfort, right? And fear that they will step on a landmine inadvertently in their efforts. And so it's a perfect example of how not to handle a survey about about anything, but in particular, not about these issues. Yeah, exactly. One of the things I found quite interesting was social distance relative to increasing empathy. Can you talk a little bit about social distance as it pertains to this topic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I think we all know intuitively that part of this issue that makes it so intractable, I think, is this discomfort. I call it discomfort, the awkwardness that occurs when people with all kinds of variations show up to do their jobs together in a certain space. 
And so I talk a lot in the book about the, the need for curiosity and connection to build that comfort. There's, it is really essential because given the segregation that we've talked about in this country as the norm, most of us, all of us are likely living in situations and working more so living in situations, going to church in situations, going to schools, libraries, parks, and grocery stores in situations where primarily most people look like us, but we don't have a great deal of human variation. That's just a norm. So it is very hard to get to understand somebody who you've not seen or have very little contact with. So that plays out then when people come into the workplace. And I think there is, I don't think we need to do artificial things to get people to get together and create this sort of proximity. But I think each of us in our lives really needs to ask ourselves, that, about that stuff. What is our experience? You know, you kind of really, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. How do you get past that? You have to reach out. And so I say the best thing to do, practice this in your neighborhood. When you're walking down the street and you find somebody and walking the dog or going on a run or whatever, you find somebody who doesn't look like you, find, think of an excuse to reach out to that person, you know, in the grocery store or whatever. Ask them about their dog. Ask them, just find some excuse. Because the thing about proximity is that it sort of brings familiarity. So it's kind of, it's almost like a little bit of a habit. You know, you practice talking to people who don't look like you and eventually you go, wait a minute, well, that wasn't so difficult. The first kind of outreach is important, is hard. But what does this have to do with leadership? It does have a lot because that awkwardness is is telegraphed in people's on people's facial expressions and in their body languages and of course in their leadership decisions. Well, and partly what you're saying is that it's a matter of getting to know people personally, because when yeah. we break down the barriers there, then all of a sudden it, it is okay if we have disagreements too about positions and opinions. Absolutely. And so, and, and I'll just throw one thing too out there, Jean, and I'm curious as to your response to this, but isn't the beginning to healing in this area actually accepting other people's experiences? So for instance, I could go to see a movie with my wife and she may love the movie and have a wonderful experience and I may not like it at all, but I can't take that experience away from her. That's, that is what her experience was. And so often at work, we seem to try to take those experiences away from people rather than actually just recognizing that they're okay. We don't necessarily have to agree, but we can come together around that and we can create more inclusive environments, right? Yeah, absolutely. That is that fundamental idea. And it relates to something earlier when we were talking about racial trauma or we we're talking about, you know, employee experience that from a, from the perspective of a black woman, you know, myself, I think that there, the reason I don't talk about these issues in the workplace or haven't traditionally is because of this whole idea, like who would I talk to about it and what would their likely reaction be? And there's always this notion of, I would have to explain it, justify it, provide the evidence and the data 10 million times to convince somebody that this is what really happened. So yeah, we have to, and that's why I try not to use the word difference uh, in my book. I use human variation over and over on purpose. And even sometimes I do slip, but I try because the whole idea of human variation is that we have these different, we're, we're different and we have different experiences. It just is. It doesn't require any kind of judgment call or evaluation of good or bad. Okay, Gina, I'd like to shift into some lightning round questions. Are you okay if I ask you sure. some quick questions here? Sure. As we are entering the holiday season here in the US, the first one seems very appropriate and it's what are you most grateful for? Oh, I, I am most grateful that I have had what I feel to be this blessing of this opportunity to write a book that can support my goal to transform the world by transforming workplaces so that we can all just be more comfortable at work. 
Mm, I love that. What's the most difficult leadership lesson you've learned over your career? I once had a young lady from Duke University who I had just hired come to me a few weeks later and says, you know, you walk into the office so purposefully and you're always on a mission and we feel like we don't get to know you. And ever since then, this I, I can see her face. I remember her school all of this years later. It was very painful because I thought that I was connecting. I put jelly beans on my desk the next day. And ever since then, I try to look for ways. I've learned that I can just get obsessed with ideas and people perceive that as a, a lack of interest. And so I've had to learn how to do better on the interpersonal in that sense. It was a real gift that she gave you, right? Yeah. <laughs> Even though it didn't feel like it at the time. At the time. <laughs> <laughs> Who is one person you would interview if you could, living or not? Yeah, it would be Maya Angelou. I talk about her incessantly because I met her, meaning in a book, when I was a teenager. And it was the first book I had ever read. I know why the caged bird sings uh, that sounded something like an experience that I might have had, though very different. I was in a different country at the time. And then over the years, I just admired her her idea that she says, not in my house. She holds people to a standard of human of humanity that we can all learn from. Do you have a top book recommendation? Well, my favorite book, I guess the book that I read that I have read multiple times would be a, would be one of Maya Angelou's books. But if I were going to pick a book that is sort of fundamentally important to me with regard to just a human experience in the workplace, I think I still go back to any of my sort of old basic psychology books. And then it gets really hard to pick a, a favorite, you know, to just pick one. But last year I read a book called Unapologetically Ambitious by Shelley Archambault, Shelley Archambault, who was the first Black CEO in Silicon Valley and is still on the Verizon board and very active. And I would recommend that book because what she talks about is how to be, how to succeed. And so it's a very useful guide for anybody who wants to figure out how to get past challenges and still you know, thrive. Well, Gina, I've loved our conversation and I would just want to ask you if you had to try to summarize the most important takeaways for our listeners, what would they be? Yeah, I would say inclusion tops diversity. Make sure that as you are headlong trying to do what we call, some people call diversity hires, that you think a little bit about the culture and the behavioral patterns in the organization at the same time, if not before. And then the other idea is that, yes, I argue for systemic change led from the top, but I also say this requires humans, each of us to be willing to have that one-on-one -on -one connection with another human being. And in the end, that's the only thing that's going to make the difference. And how can people find you? You can go to my website, ginacox.com, Gina with an E, G-E-N-A-C-O-X.com, or check me out on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me by my name. So much wisdom today. Thank you for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun. And yes, I think the whole thing felt like a lightning round because you've asked so many great questions and I've had a lot of fun answering them. <laughs> Thanks so much, Gina. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the show this week. We release new episodes every other Tuesday. Let me know what you thought of this episode by emailing humancapital at goalspan.com. Human Capital is produced by Goalspan. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this podcast with your colleagues, team, or friends. Thanks for being human, kind.